Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The podcast you're about to listen to is part of a six-part virtual webinar series entitled Palestine and Israel, Key Issues for the 118th Congress. The series took place during February and March of 2023 and was convened jointly by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute's Palestinian Affairs Program. In real time, the series was presented for members of Congress and congressional staff only, but all six sessions were so good and the issues and viewpoints they covered so important that we're now releasing the entire series to the public. The other five sessions are also available via the Occupied Thoughts podcast, and you can find the video versions of the entire series on our website at www.fmep.org, along with resources related to each discussion. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the session. Thanks, Laura. Uh, today's session is called Beyond Oslo, in which we'll be looking at the successes and failures of the Oslo process 30 years on, uh, and the extent to which the Oslo framework, including the goal of a two-state solution, is uh, still relevant in terms of uh, finding a lasting peace settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. And to help us dig into these issues, we've assembled a, a really outstanding panel of experts. Uh, I'll introduce them uh, briefly here in alphabetical order. Uh, first, we have uh, Omar Dajani. He's a professor of law at the University of the Pacific and co-director of the McGeorge Global Center for Business and Development. Next, we have uh, Dr. Meha Nassar, associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Uh, and last but not least, we have Dr. Shibli Talhami, uh, associate professor in the school, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> professor of government and politics uh, at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution. So uh, just by way of context, uh, it's been almost 30 years since PLO leader Yasser Arafat and former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin launched the Oslo peace process with their famous handshake on the White House lawn. That agreement signed in September 1993 laid out a plan for Palestinian self-government for a five-year interim period, at the end of which the two sides would agree on a permanent settlement to the nearly 100-year-old conflict between them. Uh, although Oslo did not specify the goal of a Palestinian state, and in fact, Prime Minister uh, Rabin at the time explicitly opposed the idea, by 2000, both US and Israeli leaders had come to expect, uh, accept the inevitability of Palestinian statehood. And by 2001, uh, the two-state solution was official US policy. Fast forward to today, after 30 years, countless follow-up agreements, numerous negotiating rounds, as well as seemingly endless violence, the parties are further from the goals laid out in Oslo than ever, not only is there little prospect of a two-state solution uh, or an end to uh, Israel's 55-year-old occupation, we're also witnessing right now one of the most violent episodes in Israel and Palestine in many years. Um, Shibli, I wanna start the discussion with you. Uh, if you could kind of help set the scene for us um, with a little bit of background. What was the Oslo process supposed to achieve and what has it actually achieved uh, and and how is it that this process that was supposed to last five years um, has has now uh, gone on for for almost thirty? 
First, thank you, Khaled and Laura, for organizing these. These are really helpful, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Uh, you mentioned that day in September uh, uh, 1993 at the White House lawn. I was there, and it was a, an inspiring and hopeful moment. And the reason why it was a hopeful moment isn't really the Oslo agreements as such. Um, what happened, the most important part of Oslo, was this exchange of letters between then Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, and the chairman of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, essentially recognizing each other and implicitly recognizing that the outcome would be based on two national movement, having two uh, states side by side at peace with each other. It was a breakthrough. It was huge. It opened up uh, a possibility that didn't exist before. And here embraced by uh, people who represented the Palestinians, people who represented the Israelis. Uh, the actual agreement itself was lousy from the beginning, even for people who were optimistic and embraced it. Uh, the agreement was very poorly signed and negotiated. Uh, a part of it is that there was no agreement on any final status issue whatsoever. It was supposed to be a process where you start and you hope that you have quote, confidence building measure across the way. The problem, of course, is when you have a process like that, you're giving a lot of time to those people who want to oppose the agreement on both sides. This was a controversial agreement for Palestinians and for Israelis uh, to derail it uh, through violent means and other ways. And, and obviously, we've seen that. We've seen how, in a way, every single step uh, derailed uh, the possibility of moving forward in an effective way. But more importantly, um, it put the Palestinians entirely dependent on the Israelis. The PLO moving into territories that are in fact controlled by the Israelis gave the perception of symmetry when in fact there was absolutely no symmetry. Um, there was no equality. There was no state. Uh, this was a Palestinian authority that is under the control of Israeli military might. And that asymmetry was in many ways misleading. And third, I think what we've had is that the American role, which had been indispensable, obviously the U.S. Uh, backed the agreement, as was the case in the, the signing at the White House that you you mentioned, but obviously became the, the, the key player. Uh, of course, American officials grew somewhat more sympathetic to the Palestinians along the way, but let's be clear. This was not an even-handed approach. It never was. Uh, this was an American backing of Israel, and in a way, when Israel decided it was beneficial to make peace with the Palestinians, the U.S. was there. In many ways, I think the way we have to look at it is that the Israelis brought Yasser Arafat to the White House, uh, and then they kept him out of the White House when it was no longer beneficial. Uh, the U.S. was never a full, uh, even-handed player, in even with well-meaning with well-meaning people, well-meaning president, and growing sympathy with the Palestinians. This wasn't going to happen. Obviously, the biggest uh, failure was at two, in 2000. Uh, no time to get into that. I've uh, co-authored a book on this, The Peace Puzzle, about why Camp David failed. But really, from the moment Camp David failed and the ensuing Second Intifada and the Israeli actions in the West Bank, uh, the drift to the right in Israeli politics over time, the weakness of the Palestinian Authority, the split among the Palestinians, made sure that uh, even with all the activities that followed uh, to, to try to uh, get peace in the years after, uh, I think the two-state solution 
uh, was was really became increasingly unlikely, and now I would say uh, practically impossible. Thanks, Shibli, and and I want to pick up on on some pieces of that. I want to come to you, Maha. The um, the question, and it's hinted at in a lot of what Shibli said, is you know if the if the if the agreement was already flawed from the get-go, and there's this question of confidence building measures, I always focus on constructive ambiguity as a key idea, like it'll work out fine, we'll leave it, we'll leave it ambiguous enough that people can sign it and hope that it evolves into something that actually works. Looking at this Oslo framework today, which is still the, the touchstone for Congress and for others when they talk about a peace process, quote unquote, that they want to get back to, or the rules of the game, even absent a peace process. I mean, who, who is it really relevant to this entire framework? Which constituencies are benefiting from, from holding onto it? And which benefit, which constituencies are, 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 are suffering from the continuation of this construct? And, and in that sort of more broadly, what do you see as Oslo's legacy? Um, assuming that it it really has been overtaken by events. What is its legacy, given where things are today? Thank you, Lara, for that question. Thank you both to Lara and to Khaled for having me on. So I think it's important to take a step back and look at what the Oslo Accords represented more broadly. And I think the Oslo Accords represent the peace framework that is still very common in Israeli and American policy circles. And so this peace framework is built on the idea that Israelis and Palestinians both need to make compromises, both need to take actions uh, in order to achieve a lasting peace. But as uh, Shibli just mentioned, this framework assumes that both sides have a symmetry of power and an ability to maneuver in ways that could do those confidence building measures that are required for the Oslo framework to actually be legitimate and to take shape. But the peace framework doesn't actually reflect the lived reality of most Palestinians, especially Palestinians under occupation. So most Palestinians, both those under occupation and more broadly, see Israel as a settler colonial state that has consistently sought to remove Palestinians from their homeland. And that's a process that's continued from before 1948 through 67 into the settlement and expulsions that we see today. So as a result, Palestinians have adopted a justice framework that's really rooted in anti-colonial logics of liberation. So when the Palestinian leadership, Yasser Arafat and others, abided by the Oslo Accords, they essentially shifted the framework from a justice framework to a peace framework that was built against them. And so for many of them who became the core of the Palestinian Authority, they actually benefited from the Oslo Accords because they were the recipients of the largesse of the donor funding. They achieved a modicum of autonomy within the West Bank. Many Palestinian leaders who were in exile were able to return. So many of those in the inner circle of the PA still to this day cling to the Oslo framework because they benefit from it personally. But for most Palestinians, the Oslo framework has done little to ameliorate the daily structural violence that they continue to face from the occupation. And this is really key. The Oslo Accords were meant to address the question of armed violence, but didn't really do much to address the structural violence, which happens overwhelmingly against Palestinians. So for example, Palestinian homes are demolished by Israeli bulldozers every year to make way for Jewish settlements, but not the other way around. Palestinians have to cross militarized Israeli checkpoints, 
but no Israeli has to cross a Palestinian checkpoint. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been arrested and detained in Israeli prisons, but there's no Israeli that's had to stand trial in a Palestinian court of law. So as a result, the language of Oslo sounds more and more disconnected from the lived realities that Palestinians um, face every year. So to sum up, I see Oslo's legacy as representing a spectacular failure of this peace framework. The idea that you can ignore the disproportionate structural violence inherent in the Israeli occupation and keep delaying the deployment of troops, the removal of troops, the dismantlement of settlements, while keeping the structural violence going, and at the same time insisting that both sides need to take reciprocal steps, this framework just doesn't hold water anymore. And I think we're seeing this unfold as a younger generation of Palestinians re-embraces the justice framework and are redefining the parameters of what a just peace looks like, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Thanks, Maha. And, and I think the, the question, I mean, it's not only that it doesn't hold uh, water anymore. I mean, it's the, it's questionable whether it ever actually did hold water. Just, uh, you know, one of the themes that keeps cropping up is this asymmetry between the two sides and, and, and how that was sort of built into, uh, into the Oslo uh, process. Omar, I, I want to get your take on, on, on the Oslo framework in general. Um, and your assessment of its uh, of its successes, uh, such as they may be, uh, and and failures. Um, so the basic premise of Oslo um, was that improved security for Israelis would, uh, coupled with improved economic opportunities for Palestinians, would make Israeli leaders more open to compromise and Palestinian leaders less likely to support or engage in violence. Um, that was the basic logic. Uh, at the time. Um, has that formula worked uh, in your view? And if not, what's wrong with it? Well, uh, thanks very much uh, to both of you and to everyone listening um, for uh, giving me the opportunity to participate in this conversation. Um, Khaled, I, I think the first thing that bears emphasizing is that for Palestinians, the goal was never just improved economic opportunities. Um, what Palestinians sought and what Palestinians still seek uh, was self-determination. Um, and of course, that meant in part freedom from military occupation, but also the opportunity to take control of uh, Palestinians' own affairs. Now, I think the reason Palestinians embraced Oslo in 1993 was that they understood that it was a path to that outcome. Um, and they believed, I think mistakenly, that Israel had committed to the same view. When I think uh, my reading at this juncture is that Israel's uh, political and security establishments in 1993 remained profoundly ambivalent about um, what Oslo could um, and should become. You already alluded to the fact that for Prime Minister Rabin at the time, um, Oslo would not uh, result in uh, the achievement of Palestinian statehood. And I'll, I'll never forget participating in a, uh, a seminar at, uh, at Harvard in, in 2001, in which a number of us from both the Palestinian and Israeli negotiating teams came together 
to uh, discuss what had gone wrong. And one of the things that was striking at that juncture was that our Israeli counterparts acknowledged that um, at the point they entered the process, um, they didn't really understand Oslo as a framework for ending occupation, but as a framework for creating um, a paradigm for managing conflict for um, uh, and for gradually winding it to an end without independence necessarily as a part of that solution. The thing is, I think despite Oslo's many flaws, um, it might still have worked if uh, two conditions had been met. Um, first of all, I think if influential international partners like the United States and the European Union had used the leverage that they had to press Israel to implement the commitments uh, that its leaders had made in good faith, as along with its uh, basic international law obligations, I think that even this flawed agreement might have served um, as a bridge to a better future for Israelis and Palestinians. Lara has already mentioned that one of the uh, really problematic features of the agreements was uh, their many ambiguities, uh, that it provided for example, for um, Israel to withdraw, withdraw from, from uh, West Bank territory without indicating how much territory to release prisoners without indicating how many prisoners provide for freedom of movement, um, but subject always to Israel's security discretion and, and above all, uh, not to take steps uh, to alter the status or integrity of the West Bank and Gaza Strip without stipulating specifically that that meant stop building settlements. Um, had the United States um, intervened in ways that were well within the United States power to rein in um, uh, both parties, but especially Israel's uh, uh, understanding of uh, what the, the agreements required of it, uh, we, we may well have remained on course. And secondly, if the agreements had actually served as the transitional agreement, as the transitional framework that they were designed to be as a bridge to independence and freedom for Palestinians, rather than a cul-de-sac within which the uh, conflict could be managed, then we might remember Oslo very differently at this juncture. Thanks. I, I, I'm struck listening to you, Omar, when I think about it, is I was a, I served in the consulate in Jerusalem during, during Oslo when I was covering the settlements. And it, it's interesting looking at where things are politically in Israel today, which I think is a shock to a lot of people, and remembering that many of the same actors who are either involved today or who are deeply influential in where Israeli politics are today were, were absolutely, I mean, we talked to them, you know, these are settler leaders in the West Bank in during the Oslo period, and they were, they saw Oslo as something that was going to be defeated. And they were very clear, they had a very clear straight line, which took us from there to where we are today. It, it's certainly an interesting intellectual exercise to imagine if there had been more backbone to standing up to them, if, if things might have worked out differently. Um, I want to pick up, though, I want to stick with you for a minute, Omar, and pick up on something. It's really where Maha ended, which is this new generation. And I want to talk about the current situation on the ground today. So obviously, and, and Khaled alluded to this in his introduction, we've seen a major uptick in, in, and I want to be clear, as Maha said, the structural violence is always there. And when people talk about an uptick in violence, what they generally mean is Israelis are more feeling violence against them. So people start paying attention. 
because we are seeing more of that, but Palestinians are always feeling violent. So I just want to make that very clear. But in, just in recent weeks and months, there, let's see, almost 200 Palestinians and around 21 Israelis killed last year, making it the deadliest year for West Bank Palestinians since 2005. So far this year, we, I think, are on average more than one Palestinian a day being killed. I think it's 41 since the beginning of the year. It may have gone up since I last spoke. And I know there was Israelis who were killed today in Jerusalem. What does this status quo today say about the Oslo process and its ability or lack of ability to manage conflict, which I think a lot of people from the start understood as it was its primary purpose? I, I think that um, what it reveals is that the Oslo process is misses the point that it is ill-designed uh, for the services to which it's been, for the purposes to which it's been put. Um, and to my mind, the the critical problem is that what Oslo doesn't address itself to is the primary reality for Palestinians, which is a lack of equality and a lack of freedom. Um, I was just in uh, Israel-Palestine in, in December and uh, working on a, on a book project and went with uh, Nadav Wyman, um, uh, who is a, an activist with Breaking the Silence, an Israeli organization comprised of um, former Israeli soldiers. Um, and he was telling uh, a colleague of mine and I how he ultimately decided to stop doing reserve duty and to um, uh, take up the cause of fighting the occupation as an activist. Um, he told us that he had been in Israel's special forces for many years. And to the point that you just made, uh, Lara, echoing Maha's point about structural violence, um, he said, listen, in the years that I was most active, years when the Palestinian uh, Second Intifada was finished, um, when people understood that there was calm, we were going into people's houses at all times of the days and nights, conducting operations um, and and uh, terrifying people. He told us the story that was the turning point for him, which was um, entering um, at, in the middle of the night, uh, at the home of some Palestinians in the Southern West Bank, um, breaking in in full gear. Um, uh, and he said, you know, imagine me dressed in armor wearing um, a mask on my face uh, with infrared glasses um, on my uh, over my eyes. We break into the house. We have to secure every room. Um, uh, we break into, I, I enter one room and there I see a seven-year-old kid sleeping on the bed. Um, and this kid sees me, a monster in armor, approach him and wets himself. And um, he said uh, that two things prompted him uh, to resolve never to do that again. First, the recognition um, that he was going to be a part of that kid's nightmares for the rest of that kid's life. And second, that they realized that it was the wrong house, um, that this was, in fact, not the right place to be only 24 hours later. And that, to my mind, captures so poignantly the reality that Palestinians live in a, in a situation of occupation, um, a reality that I think Americans are insufficiently attuned to. Um, when people talk about inequality, what it means is that 
um, a Palestinian living in the city of Ramallah and a Jewish settler living just less than a thousand feet away in the Israeli settlement of Pesagot have fundamentally different rights. The settler's house can't be searched without a warrant, um, but any Israeli officer or authorized uh, soldier can walk into the Palestinian's house in the middle of the night, was, as was done in these circumstances, uh, and do what they will. And what we see is uh, the current Israeli government pushing for even broader rights, um, uh, broader uh, ability to take steps like this. Um, we know that the Israeli settler is subject to Israeli criminal law, um, and if arrested, would stand trial in a court in Israel, whereas the Palestinian, if arrested after an altercation with an Israeli, would stand trial in a military court, which offers very, very few procedural safeguards and almost always results in one verdict, guilty as charged. Um, the Israeli settler can enter Jerusalem and receive medical care, um, worship at a holy site, uh, go shopping any time that he or she wants. Um, the Palestinian would have to require, would have to apply for a permit even to enter the eastern part of the city, which is uh, Palestinian East Jerusalem. So this equality, some, this inequality, I think, is the prevailing reality for Palestinians. And um, the Oslo conflict management frame simply doesn't address itself to it. Thanks, Omar. Um, Shibli, um, I want to ask you about um, this, uh, this, this imbalance. And specifically, one of the central pillars of Oslo has always been uh, security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli army. Uh, and frankly, for, for Israelis and, and even U.S. policymakers, it's probably the, the single most important feature um, uh, of the whole Oslo framework. Um, but it's also been important to, to the Palestinian leadership, um, even though it is hugely unpopular. Um, as you may, uh, as you I'm sure know, in a couple weeks ago, after the uh, killing of, of 10 people in the Janine refugee camp in the northern West Bank, um, President Abbas announced uh, that he was suspending security cooperation with the Israelis as a, as a form of protest. It's only the second time that he's done that, uh, the first time being uh, in, uh, in, in response to uh, fears of imminent Israeli annexation in the West Bank in the context of the, of the Trump uh, plan. Um, how significant do you think is Abbas's announcement? What, what does it mean in, in, in practical terms on the ground, given the, the, the deterioration uh, of conditions uh, on the ground? Well, first of all, I don't know how serious um, Mahmoud Abbas is, uh, given that he is entirely dependent on aid from the US and, and the Israelis, whether or not he can sustain or not. But let's put it in some perspective. This idea when it originally emerged, when in fact there were hopeful years in the Oslo Accord was not a bad idea. The, the, the thought was, uh, particularly when Yitzhak Rabin was still alive and then uh, later before he was assassinated, uh, by a right-wing Israeli, um, uh, he um, developed a working relationship with Yasser Arafat, and they understood that they both faced militants on both sides, that they needed behind the scene to coordinate with each other to try to, to limit 
the ability of militants to derail what they may have had in mind in moving forward. That idea was not a bad idea at a time when it was seemingly, maybe not perfectly symmetrical, but the idea was that they both would help each other in moving forward. Obviously, it has been transformed into something else because the the peace process, I put that in quotation mark, I, di I died years ago and the prospect of a solution has not been there. There's been no symmetry. We've had mostly right-wing Israeli governments that had no intention of cooperating with the Palestinians about Palestinian security. So the ultimate result was that this agreement between the PA and the cooperation between the PA and the Israelis has been seen by Palestinians as subcontracting for Israeli security, essentially working with Israeli forces to prevent any possible attacks by any Palestinian and sharing intelligence, more importantly, which can become play into the hands of people who might have different objectives on the Israeli side. There is no ability whatsoever of such an agreement to protect Palestinians, uh, whether it's from settlers. No one protects Palestinians from settlers. The PA certainly can't do it. The Israelis have not been able to do it, and this government may not be willing to do it in addition to not being able to do it. And, and certainly the Palestinians and the PA cannot protect the Palestinians from Israeli military attacks or, or, or police attacks or anything of that sort. So it's obviously no symmetry. It's one, and, and politically it's, it's, it's completely, um, you know, um, uh, uh, difficult for, for, for Abu Mazen, who has lost a lot of legitimacy, but, but backtracking on this one would certainly even erode his legitimacy more. But one thing I want to go back to is that we, you know, um, I'm appreciative for Omar for giving a little more contact to what we call structural uh, violence. And, but I think this is not understood enough. And, and let me just say this because, you know, when I hear, um, you know, uh, President of the United States or the Secretary of State of the United States saying, let's clamp down on the violence, they're talking about the shootings, which are awful, you know, whether it's shooting of, of Israel or shooting of Palestinians, these are visible. These are visible. But, you know, you, you have to look at it in perspective. I mean, if you look at the, throughout the occupation, first of all, the ratio of casualties has been roughly four to one, uh, 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 more Palestinians than Israelis. But put that aside. I mean, what is it that we think is taking place on the West Bank? What does it mean to have military domination over five million people for five and a half decades? What does it mean? How are you going to do it except for the gun? And even when the gun is not fired, that's violence. Uh, because it is the gun that is being exercised every day of the week, every minute of the week, at every step for every single person in under Israeli control. Uh, and so that's violence. And we don't quite fully understand it, that that is violence and humiliation every single day. I've always asked myself, um, what do I would do if I had children growing up knowing nothing but this kind of domination vulnerability and humiliation every day of their life, and they're looking at a horizon in the future when they should expect nothing but the same, and then they're adults, and I'm looking to see what they would do. Would I really be proud of them if they did not resist? Would I really be, would any of us, would any of us be proud of our children under such circumstances if they did not resist? I wouldn't want them to resist violently, but how are you going to be able to do it peacefully without the international support given the asymmetry of power. How are you going to be able to do it peacefully if you're going to take away the peaceful means available to them, such as clamping down 
on NGOs that, that champion their causes or preventing them from even going to international courts and international organizations to pass judgment. And so I think we have to get real. We, we shouldn't camouflage the, the structural violence by just calling it that and, and passing over it. But we need to understand that that is the constant violence that is far more enduring and troubling and, 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 and impactful on the lives of people and the futures of people than the awful shootings, awful as they are. Thanks, Shibley. And, and for, the, for anyone in the audience, I just want to just decode that a bit. The last bit that Shibley was talking about is the designation by the Israeli government of Palestinian human rights and civil society NGOs as terrorist organizations. This is something that the U.S. has not joined in and supported, but also has not come out strongly against um, or in any way seriously against. And he's also referring to the opposition of the international community, in particular the U.S., to Palestinians seeking accountability for Israel um, at the UN and the ICC and the ICJ, um, which is something that comes up often in Congress and there's legislation actually against pretty much all of those things or efforts to pass legislation against that. Um, so Maha, I wanna, I wanna come back to you and I wanna pick up on, on some of the stuff that Shibley talked about from the perspective of Palestinians on the ground and looking at the credibility of Abbas and the PA. Um, certainly, um, I mean, Shibley referred to this. This is if, if the if the security cooperation is seen as complicity with Israeli structural violence against Palestinians, it is obviously highly unpopular. There's polling around that. It's seen as a form of collaboration. And increasingly in the past few years, you've seen a generation which is pushing back equally against authoritarian security apparatus of the PA, which does it, which is seen as being against them and pushing back against Israel. Can you talk about how all of this, particularly this question of maintaining security, maintaining quiet, how all of this reflects on the, the credibility or impacts on the credibility and legitimacy of the PA, which is, I mean, fundamental. I mean, the PA is the only piece of the Oslo structure that's in really relevant in the daily lives of Palestinians, how that reflects upon that for Palestinians on the ground and, and also how it's seen in the diaspora. Sure, thank you. So, to give you just one kind of snippet into what this means in terms of the PA's overall credibility and legitimacy among Palestinians, uh, a recent poll done in December by the Palestinian Center for Research and Survey, uh, Palestinian Survey Research, showed that about three quarters of the Palestinians polled want PA President Mahmoud Abbas to step, step down. So his disapproval ratings at 75%, 73% want him to actually step down. So this has really undermined PA legitimacy overall for many of the reasons that should be just laid out in terms of the PA security services being seen as a subcontractor for the Israeli occupation. Another factor is the huge um, budgetary bloat of the security services. So it's the single, the security services are the PA's largest department. It contains 45% of its workforce and it's the single largest item in the PA's budget. And so at a time when other public sector workers, teachers, nurses, et cetera, are going unpaid and when public services are being cut back, money is continuing to flow into those security services. And what makes this especially infuriating is not just that the PA services are understood to be enforcers of Israelis, of um, Israel's occupation. And we see it, saw this, by the way, in the last couple of weeks with these Israeli raids that have taken place in Janine and Nablus, 
Those are technically area A, which is supposed to be, or ostensibly is under full PA autonomy. So the fact that Israeli troops invaded, killed, arrested, means either they had permission from the PA or that the PA was powerless to stop them. And so either way, Palestinians see the PA as a subcontractor of the Israeli occupation. But beyond that, PA security services themselves are also very active in repressing Palestinian critics and clamping down on Palestinian free speech. In June, 2021, PA security personnel brutally murdered Palestinian critic by the name of Nizar Banat, uh, violently arresting him, brutally beating him, taking out of his home, and then he was um, found dead in, in um, custody. And then when protesters and Palestinians went into, out into the streets protesting nonviolently, I'll add, protesting his murder, the PA security services beat up the protesters. And what was particularly worrying to Palestinians, both in Palestine and in the, in the diaspora, which you asked about, is that there was a noted rise in PA security personnel targeting female protesters for beating and for harassment. And that included confiscating their phones and publishing private photos in an effort to intimidate women in particular and keep them from expressing their political views. This past summer in 2022, we again saw several instances in which PA security forces shut down Palestinian cultural events in and around Ramallah, claiming security concerns but showing no evidence for it. So there's a growing sense among Palestinians both in the West Bank and beyond that the PA's inner circle is looking for ways to crack down on Palestinian dissent ahead of the post-Mahmoud Abbas landscape. I think it's also really important to remember that this current generation of PA security forces, many of them have been trained by the US Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Territories, or the USSC. And so as a result, for many Palestinians, for most I would say, the US is implicated in the PA's own abuses. Palestinians know that the security services are trained by the USSC or have been since 2007. And they refer colloquially to the security services as Dayton's forces after Keith Dayton, the first head of the USSC. So they see the US as compounding the problem rather than helping it. And so finally, I think what all of this tells us is that it helps us understand the recent rise we've seen for Palestinian armed groups like the Lion's Den group that has been emerging in the Northern West Bank and the rise for support and armed resistance more broadly. That December 2022 poll I mentioned also showed that 72% of Palestinians polled supported the forming of groups like Lion's Den and 51% saw armed struggle as the most effective means of ending the Israeli occupation. And this is a notable rise from just a few months prior. And again, further evidence of the PA's loss of legitimacy. Thanks, Maha. Um, we've seen uh, how this uh, kind of hyper-securitization of, uh, of the Palestinian Authority is uh, really an outgrowth of the, of the Oslo process and the, the almost obsessive focus on, on security. Um, as as Maha pointed out, reflected in the PA's budget. Um, so it, it's not only produced a very authoritarian authority, um, but it's also to spend almost half of your your budget on security is just not a sustainable governance model in in any context. Um, you know, people are outraged that the United States spends you know a little over ten percent of its budget on 
on the military. Um, and so uh, e even if a Palestinian state were possible, what sort of Palestinian state is being, uh, is being created here? Um, but there are other threats to, to the Palestinian Authority uh, in terms of its continued existence. Um, and the PA really is, I, I, I think, probably the most tangible um, expression uh, and achievement of the, of the entire Oslo process. Um, uh, uh, what we've seen uh, is not just that Palestinians are losing faith in the Palestinian Authority, but even in the international community. Um, international donor aid to the Palestinian Authority has declined by uh, about 75% in the past 10 years. Um, that's a huge reduction to, for an entity that relies so heavily on, on international uh, largesse. Um, and so um, is that, a, I'm gonna ask Omar to, to uh, I'm gonna put this question to Omar. Does that suggest that the international community is itself kind of voting with their pocketbooks? I mean, they're divest, are they divesting from the Palestinian Authority and, and by extension the Oslo process uh, itself, uh, in, in which case, how much longer can can the PA survive? Around uh, 10 years ago, uh, Nathan Brown, um, a professor at, at George Washington uh, University, uh, pointed out the um, irony of the phrase that was most often used to describe the situation in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, which was, that the, the situation continues to be unsustainable. Um, and uh, I, I think that that, um, that oxymoron um, in some respects uh, continues to capture uh, the predicament that Palestinian, the Palestinian Authority is facing today. I think that what has sustained the Palestinian Authority through the years is the life support provided by the international community and its ability to use that life support, um, not only to uh, keep Israel satisfied through security coordination, um, but also to uh, play the game of patronage, uh, to provide critically needed salaries to uh, more than 100,000 Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, um, including uh, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip uh, who were under the PA's employ, but actually not in their jobs because of Hamas's rule there. Um, uh, but also to um, uh, provide uh, uh, assistance or support in places that seemed most central to uh, the political, the PA remaining af afloat politically. As those funds dry up, and Khaled, I think you're, uh, you, you point to a really important phenomenon here. Uh, I think uh, the drying up of funds reflects in part um, a lack of confidence that the PA can um, continue to play the role for which it was designed, lack of confidence in the future of a two-state solution, um, uh, lack of um, focus on Palestine when there are many other uh, circumstances around the world uh, that are commanding resources and attention. Um, and so I don't know that the PA will continue to have the resources that it needs to stay afloat. And as Maha points out, I think uh, the erosion to its legitimacy um, following a succession crisis or in the midst of a succession crisis in particular, 
um, if Mahmoud Abbas dies, or he will die after all, um, people do, especially at that age, or steps down, um, will yield um, an opportunity for a reset. And I think, whereas many Palestinians 10 years ago, brutalized by the circumstances in which they were living, said, you know what, stability is more important than having everything that we seek at this juncture. I think that their calculations too are changing and the new generation in particular um, sees very little to commend the circumstances in which they're living. So that, that's a perfect lead in Omar to the, the question I wanna to put to Shibley, which is sort of you know getting right to the heart of the matter. I mean, there's a lot of discussion over can the PA survive and what needs to be done to keep the PA afloat? There is a deeper question is, should it survive? And this is a question we're actually hearing people for years now asking, right? A growing number of voices, we're talking about Palestinians, but also non-Palestinians looking at this analytically, basically saying that the, the existence of the PA now has become an obstacle to realization of Palestinian self-determination and achievement of rights. And, and there are people actually calling for the dissolution of the PA, right? Um, so. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How likely do you think that is a scenario is a scenario as a scenario, given how invested the international community is, and given that the PA does actually command forces? So I mean it, it has its own way of keeping itself in place. But also imagining that we get to a decision to dissolve or a collapse, what does that mean in your analysis for conditions on the ground? Um, is that an opening for progress or is that an opening for the forces that want to reset things um, in a way that is maybe in favor of Israeli permanent control? Um, how do you see that playing out? And you're, you're muted, Shibley. Um, uh, I, I hesitate to ask this question, not because I don't have an answer, but because I think in some ways it, it's distracting. Uh, because I think what happens to the PA and doesn't happen to the PA is irrelevant to the actual outcome of freedom for the Palestinians um, uh, and, and equality for the Palestinians. Uh, because I stopped looking at Israel-Palestine through a promised lens of two states or through a lens of a state occupying territories. I now see it through a lens of a one-state reality that is unavoidable. And when you put on a new pair of glasses and you start with a reality that is one-state reality, then you see the PA for what it is. It is not a particularly relevant entity. It's not that it's irrelevant for the lives of Palestinians every day in the ways that uh, Omar put it or for the structures that now exist. Uh, some of them are positive, some of them are negative, but it will not be in any shape or form in a position to alter the structure of the one state reality. And so in that sense, what happens to the PA is only about what is going to happen immediately on the ground. What is the process that is going to unfold? Is it going to be disruptive? Is it going to be a headache? Is it going to be a, a painful for certain segments of the population and helpful for others? That's a worthy question, obviously. I, I will not say that it's not an important question, but it is not an important question for the big picture that we have to grapple as, as Americans, uh, looking at it from what the U.S. should be doing, uh, and uh, as uh, the international community, looking at it from the point of view of what needs to be done. 
because I think that I am very frustrated with our preoccupation with side issues. Uh, uh, is what happens with, when Abu Mazen dies? Uh, uh, what will happen if the authority weakens? What will happen if they stop cooperating with the Israelis? You know, those are all, you know, minor issues in the big picture. And we got to really, really stick to that. Now, having said that, yes, I mean, the Palestinian Authority has a lot of people invested in it. And it's not just the, the international community, the, the U.S., but even the Arab states who, who want to pretend like there's a two-state salute, there's already a Palestinian entity they, they want to refer to. They, they wouldn't know what in the world to do if there's no Palestinian authority. How are they going to look and evaluate what they're doing with Israel if, in fact, it is a one-state reality? The same thing could be said of not just the United States, even the Europeans, who have found it beneficial to sidestep confronting the one-state reality. Uh, everybody's invested, and they are, as 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 Omar pointed out, uh, there there are thousands of Palestinians whose whose immediate livelihood is dependent on it. It does have a certain function uh, in the West Bank and and in Gaza even uh, that will you know be disrupted if it ceases to exist. Um, and I don't know what the likelihood of its disappearance is even after uh, the passing of Mahmoud Abbas. Um, uh, because so many people are invested in it. Uh, um, but I do think that it's being increasingly marginalized uh, by the forces on the ground. And that process is going to continue no matter what happens uh, and who is the president of the Palestinian Authority. Thanks, Shibli. Um, so, so we've seen uh, uh, how the, the Palestinian leadership has been in decline. It's lost its legitimacy. Um, Maha, I want to I want to ask you to um, to uh, to um, uh, to address the question of Palestinian leadership in a little bit more detail, uh, given the many failures of this particular leadership in the West Bank, but but also for that matter, the authority in Gaza. I think. Uh, has also not really been successful either in terms of uh, its its national uh, program of liberating Palestine or as as a as a governance model. Um, so given this this failure, a lot of Palestinians in the occupied territories have begun to look elsewhere for signs of leadership. And for a time, the joint list, the the group, the block of Palestinian parties in Israel, um, that at one time I think. Not, not too many years ago, formed the third largest bloc in the Israeli Knesset, um, headed under the leadership of, of uh, Ayman Oda. And for a time, uh, people were saying, well, maybe, maybe there's a new Palestinian leadership um, centered around Palestinians uh, in Israel. Um, is, that, is that a credible um, source of leadership for, for Palestinians. I mean, we've seen in the past how the center of gravity in Palestinian politics shifted from the diaspora to Palestinians inside the West Bank. Could it shift again to, to Palestinians in Israel? Or uh, is it, uh, or are they simply too divided and, and fractious uh, as, as the leadership is in the West Bank and Gaza? Thank you for that, Khaled. So throughout uh, we've been talking about generational shifts that have been happening among Palestinians. And we're also seeing generational shifts happening among Palestinian citizens of Israel as well. 
So about 60% of the Palestinian population is under the age of 30. Among Palestinian citizens of Israel, it's a bit less, but it's over half. The thing is that Ayman Oda is 48 years old, Mansour Abbas is 49. Uh, I'm of their vintage, so it doesn't seem that old, but compared to a large number of Palestinians on the ground, their rhetoric sounds a bit outdated. So there are concrete differences between them, to be sure, particularly in domestic politics. Ayman Oda is more socially progressive, Mansour Abbas is more socially conservative. But both of them have continued a discourse that I trace in my own research on this group of Palestinians um, in my book, Brothers Apart, and also in a chapter that came out recently called Between Two States and One. Both of them are calling for equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel within the Israeli state. They have different notions of what that means, different ideas about how to get there, but they both still emphasize equality. But over the last few years, I've seen a real paradigmatic shift among younger Palestinian citizens of Israel, and it really came to the fore in uh, May of 2021. Rather than calling for equality within the Israeli state and the establishment of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, today, many younger Palestinians in Israel are increasingly framing their struggle as part of that broader struggle for unity and for liberation from all forms of Israeli settler colonialism. So reverting back to that justice framework that I talked about earlier. There are many factors for this, the rise of the right wing in Israel, 2018 nation state basic law, uh, passage of more explicitly discriminatory laws, but also the increased connectivity between Palestinians across the political borders. And so again, we saw this in May, 2021, and it gave, I think, a lot of young Palestinians on both sides of the green line, a taste of what a post-two-state vision can look like. So Palestinian organizers in Israel spearheaded a very successful one-day Palestinian national strike on May 18th, 2021. It was the first such strike since 1936. A group of them posted what became known as the Manifesto of Dignity and Hope that was circulated widely in English and Arabic. It identifies the problems not as a lack of equality here or Israeli occupation there, but as a system of what they call Israeli colonial repression that isolated Palestinians into various prisons. Tellingly, they referred to Palestinians in the West Bank as being under what they called, quote, the Oslo prison, unquote. And so they're calling for unity, for renewal of a political will and a means of collectively fighting for liberation. So this language is very, very different from the language both of Ayman Oda and especially of Mansour Abbas, who are talking about equality within the Israeli state and are, and for Mansour Abbas in particular, not really shying away from any mention of any kind of connection to the Palestinian body politic as a whole. And so this generational shift is somewhat similar to what I see in the US taking place between Gen X and Gen Z, where Gen Z is much more interested, younger Americans are much more interested in examining the root causes of inequalities rather than just calling for equality. Uh, and, and so I see this trend continuing, particularly with the rise of the Israeli far right and the move away from even the pretense of upholding liberal democratic principles I think that even though there are still plenty of Palestinian citizens of Israel 
who will continue to seek integration and equality. Uh, I see them being sorely disappointed, frankly, with the prospects of being able to do so under the current government and increasingly looking for alternatives, both to securing equality in Israel and alternatives to the two-state solution. So I think they'll rather turn to younger grassroots organizers as opposed to veterans of the Knesset. Thanks, Maha. And I want to actually just say thank you for remembering that Gen X exists, which generally in analyses we have um, that written out. And it's it's actually important because Gen X really is the generation of the peace process. It's the generation that came of age and had both the hopes and then the hopes dashed by the peace process. Um, I wanted to pick up on, on what you were saying. You know, I, I have been struck in recent years, it, you know, if if the first 50 years after 67 were in part defined by the fragment, the fragmenting or fragmentation of Palestinian identity, particularly since Oslo, the fragmentation of you have people in Gaza, they have their interests and identity. You have Palestinians inside Israel proper, totally separate, West Bank, East Jerusalem, very much fragmented. The past few years seem to have been very much defined by the coming back together, the anti-fragmentation of this. And, and Shibley, where you left off on your last answer, um, which, which I really appreciated, was looking at this sort of bigger reality. You can keep quibbling about the details of equality inside Israel or the fate of the PA. The bottom line, if you put on the glasses of the one state, the one state framework, everything starts to come into focus. And I want you to develop that a little bit more. You know, this this the name of this event is, is it's, it's focused on Oslo. How does the unraveling of the Oslo framework? And I think even people who wish that Oslo was still, you know, successful and dominant will recognize that it is unraveling or has unraveled. So how does that unraveling necessarily spell the end of the two-state solution? Or, you know, what do you say to people who say it, it's not it's not dead, it's just sleeping or it can be brought back to life? Um, but for folks who see it as the end, you know, what do you see when you talk, when you put on your one state glasses, what, what possibilities exist for de developing an alternative framework, both for conflict management or for conflict resolution? And what might that look like? And, and here, if you also wanna address the, the growing discussion of things like confederation, which I think has gotten some, some traction on the Hill as well. Um, so um, as you know, um, we have a new book out, um, just came out this week, by Cornell University Press. Um, uh, you, Lara, and you, Khalid, uh, both have uh, contributions to it. Um, um, uh, four of us, uh, in addition to me, uh, Nathan Brown, who, who was mentioned by Omar, uh, and uh, Mark Lynch and Michael Barnett, uh, have worked on this for years, um, uh, putting workshop people to think about sort of how, what is Israel-Palestine now, uh, to, to consider a new paradigm, to look at the reality as it now exists, to shift from the limited vocabulary that we have used, uh, such as returning to the peace process and returning to the negotiations and the promise of two states, uh, when in fact, uh, you know, if anything over time, two states have become less and less likely and the reality of the ground has gotten worse and worse, at least for Palestinians. And so um, I think we have we have certainly collectively reached a conclusion uh, that we now what we now face is a, is a one state reality. Um, uh, and that is not just based on how things have changed on the ground and the fact that it has already lost it, that the idea that you have a, an, an occupation is an idea that it's temporary. 
it's and and part of the toleration that existed in the international community of of the inequality that existed was that they saw in Israel uh, a democracy imperfect as it is particularly toward Arab citizens but not you know so illiberal that it is striking compared to many other countries and then they saw the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and was a temporary occupation now uh, I mean I think five and a half decades of temporary is not temporary I mean that is a lifetime and I ask anyone to say whether or not it is even conceivable at least in the next 10 years we've done polling actually among scholars uh who the overwhelming majority of whom say it's become impossible to have two states and uh, a majority of, of scholars in the middle east from three organizations that we have pulled the american political science organization the middle east studies organization as uh uh uh, uh, uh studies association uh the historical studies association um you know a majority say what we now have is a one-state reality akin to apartheid um that is it that is the view of of so many experts um so i think what we need to do is have a paradigm shift um we 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 have to assess this for what it is now uh and the reality is one state and if you look at it from the point of view of what a state is, uh, having the monopoly on the use of violence, uh, controlling borders and airspace uh, across um, uh, the territories, the, the ability to uh, exercise its power across uh, these borders. Now, there's no question that Israel is acting as a one-state reality from the Jordan River to uh, the Mediterranean. And so if that is the case, then all the judgments that you have to pass, be it moral judgments about how you characterize the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians uh, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, especially, but also inside, um, have to uh, have to be assessed accordingly. What type of relationship is that if it's no longer one of just occupation? Um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, prescription for what it is that we expect the international community to do or characterize it. Um, uh, I think um, uh, people would no longer be um, able to just hide behind a promise of unlikely two states uh, as a way of camouflaging what now exists and grasping the cruelty of what now exists, the injustice that now exists. And I think we've already begun to see that a lot of people, including here in the United States, among public opinions, particularly in polling that I've been conducting, especially among Democrats, um, that this issue is increasingly seen through the prism of social justice, not through the prism of strategic policy or uh, strategic interests, or even for among young evangelicals, according to polls I've conducted, uh, less about biblical prophecy and more about social justice. And I think that's an avenue uh, that opens up a whole new conversation, a whole new narrative. We don't know how this is going to play itself out in the discourse exactly, or what the consequences will be on the ground. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there needs to be a paradigm shift in the way we look at Israel-Palestine today and not pretend uh, that 
there is some end in sight uh, to the Israeli military control or that there is a two-state solution around the corner that would somehow take us to the promised land. Thanks, Shibli. Um, uh, Omar, you have also undergone a, a sort of uh, philosophical uh, evolution. Um, uh, I think for, for those in our audience who haven't yet seen your full bio, um, you actually worked on the negotiations for, for several years and at, at a very critical moment, right? I think probably in, in, in 2000, right? Uh, which were in, I think, arguably the most serious Israeli-Palestinian negotiations um, at any point before or since. Um, uh, and so you work directly on a two-state solution and yet you've sort of evolved in a different direction um, the the idea of confederation has come up, and that's something that you've written about uh, quite a bit um, uh, as an alternative to uh, the traditional Oslo-informed uh, kind of territorial partition. Um, tell us a little bit about, in 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 maybe three or four minutes, uh, what 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 does confederation entail, and and how can it actually be achieved? So I think one of the silver linings of the collapse of the Oslo process is that it's obliged us to rethink some of its foundations. And one of the foundations of the Oslo framework was the idea of separation, that um, we should divide Israel-Palestine into two states. Um, and in the words of a campaign slogan of both uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak, um, uh, it would be us here and them there. Um, I think that that approach uh, was problematic in a range of ways. Um, it was inattentive to Palestinians' desire for uh, the return of refugees to the homes um, from which they fled or were expelled in, in uh, 1948. It was unresponsive to the fact that hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers had made their homes in the West Bank and that um, uh, relocating them back to Israel was going to be incredibly costly politically um, and economically, perhaps even from a security perspective, and that um, there was an attachment on the part of both peoples to all the land, um, not just all of Jerusalem, um, but that uh, Palestinians uh, uh, like Maha and like me uh, come from places originally inside Israel, Jaffa, uh, that uh, many Israelis are attached to places like Hebron um, or uh, Nablus, Shechem, where there is an uh, 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 historical and religious uh, significance. And so um, what the idea of confederation undertakes to do is to um, uh, embrace the idea of two states, but without separation. And so Israel-Palestine, um, Israel and Palestine would uh, uh, be two sovereign states, but there would be a regime of freedom of movement and residence across them, along with a whole array of shared institutions that ensured that their respective citizens and residents would be protected um, and uh, uh, that there would be cooperation in areas that were of critical importance. I think that um, to me, the innovation, aside from the, the practical benefits of such an approach, is that it gives both peoples the opportunity for meaningful self-determination, which I think remains uh, an important goal for each of them, while at the same time affirming the fact that this uh, tiny place uh, is 
uh, holy and um, sacred to both peoples. Now, in terms of how to get there, I think it's incredibly difficult. I think any so solution is difficult at this juncture. And um, if I'm really honest, I, I think that um, while I believe we will ultimately, if, if we are to see peace in Israel-Palestine, um, we will ultimately get to an arrangement that looks like confederation or federation. Um, but I, I suspect that the road to it requires engaging the issue of equality um, uh, as directly and soberly as possible. And there are, um, I think there is an imperative to um, uh, fight for equal rights for Arab and Jew whether we live in one state or two. And I think that that is um, the way in which we make our way toward what ultimately may be a more sustainable framework. Thank you, Omar. And um, I don't know if we can put a link to it. You, uh, Omar and I were part of a discussion at Dartmouth not that long ago, looking at the pros and cons of confederation and the ins and outs. And I think it's a, a, useful, a useful discussion. Um, Maha, you're going to get the last word. Um, and here, I want to come back to this broader question of the future, the relevance of Oslo and future of Oslo. And, and you know, we've talked about the PA and its credibility, credibility issues. The bottom line is that the PA has been, been hemorrhaging credibility for a while, largely because of the things we've been talking about today. And yet President Abbas still remains wedded to that framework. The PA's very existence remains um, predicated on that framework. And this has been true even as we have now gone through decades of Israeli governments that as a matter of policy and public, public articulation of policy have made clear that they actually don't support Oslo, they don't support a two-state solution, and that they are changing facts on the ground as quickly as they're able, depending on what's happening largely in Washington and in their domestic Israeli political fight, um, to make sure that there can never be any sort of post-Oslo reality that looks anything like what was envisioned when people set out at Oslo. So my question for you is, I guess, A, do you see any way that this PA can, can reorient itself to some other outcome other than a post-Oslo or an, uh, some other framework than Oslo and an outcome that could come out of that? Um, and if, you, if the answer is no, how does a, a new Palestinian leadership emerge that is oriented differently? And you, you've hinted at this a little bit with the younger generation and civil society, but I want you to close off this discussion with a focus on those things. Great, thank you. So the short answer to your first question is no. I don't see the current PA leadership being able to adapt to a post-Oslo reality precisely because its very existence is predicated on upholding the myth that the Oslo framework is somehow still workable. So let's move beyond that then and acknowledge and recognize that moving beyond Oslo, moving beyond the sort of stale discourse of the 90s will require a new Palestinian leadership. That leadership will have to be democratically elected and reflect the will of the Palestinian people. And when I say Palestinian people, I have more than just the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza in mind. Just to remind our audience today, there are about 14 million Palestinians. About 7 million of them live within historic Palestine. So West Bank, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, Israel. And then 7 million more live in exile and are the children and grandchildren of Palestinian refugees, myself and Omar included. So it's important to remember that the Oslo framework excluded over half of the Palestinian population by taking the issue of refugees off the table. 
So as we look to a post-Oslo environment, Palestinians both in and outside Palestine are saying in effect, we will not be excluded again. To that end, we're seeing a renewed push among Palestinian civil society for, a more, for more democratic representation. For example, the Algiers, the Algiers Reconciliation Agreement last fall between 14 Palestinian political parties, including Fatah and Hamas, promised to speed up the holding of presidential and legislative elections in Palestinian territories. And also we're seeing broader mobilization. So a week after the Algiers Reconciliation Agreement, a Palestinian popular conference was convened. One of their central calls was to reform the PLO to be more democratically representative of all Palestinians. Now, interestingly, the conference gatherings were held in Gaza and Haifa and cities around the world, but the PA blocked the convening in Ramallah and arrested the conveners in Ramallah. So it's clear that Abbas and the PA are scared of an alternative democratically elected leadership emerging, but until now they've been able to rely on the US and international donors to shore them up against the will of the Palestinians. Let me also quickly comment on Shibli and Omar's points about possible alternatives to the two-state solution. Given how badly Oslo worked out for Palestinians, they're deeply skeptical at this point about any alternative being proposed. And so in order for us to move into a subsequent reality, some kind of conflict resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to get us to some kind of a just resolution, it'll need to have true popular legitimacy among Palestinians. And the only way for that to happen is to have a truly democratically elected leadership that represents all 14 million, 14 million Palestinians worldwide. That's all I'm there. Thank you, Maha. And uh, uh, we're gonna have to wrap up there. Um, so uh, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I wanna thank our participants, Maha, Omar, and Shibli for uh, a really rich and fascinating discussion. We probably could have gone for several more hours. Um, and thanks to all of you who, uh, who joined our webinar and especially uh, to those who submitted questions. Hope to see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.